Welcome to Four Quarter Lives, a podcast exploring the profound impact of longer, healthier, and more engaged lives, not only for ourselves and our couples, but also for companies and countries. I'm Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, and on this week's Four Quarter Lives, I talk with James Root, partner in Bain & Company's Hong Kong office and chairman of Bain Futures. He's one of the authors of a newly published report that takes a data-driven look at the issues of older workers from their perspective. It's an urgently needed lens if companies are to effectively attract, retain, and motivate the growing percentage of their talent over 50. It's also a call to action. So welcome, James Root, to Four Quarter Lives. Delighted to have you with us. Thank you. Happy to be here. So the headlines of this conversation is that Bain Futures, a part of the consulting firm Bain & Company, one of the world's leading consulting firms, is the part that looks at future trends. And you just published a report, which I found fascinating, called Better With Age, The Rising Importance of Older Workers. And when we spoke, you said it's based on asking a lot of people, like really a lot of people, some 40,000 across 19 countries, a simple but beautifully fundamental question, why do you go to work? So why this frame and what are your key takeaways from this study? You know, we're in the business of helping our clients identify and then capture value. And you get about one millisecond into that journey before you say, all right, it's actually all to do with the people that you have. Having the right people in, retaining them, having them work more and more productively, rewarding them in ways that they want to be rewarded, and so on. And we live in this world of talent scarcity right now. And so there were two things, really, that kind of led us to say, we need to understand individuals at work a lot better. And the first was how little firms seem to understand what motivates their workers. It's not an Isn't that question. amazing in 2020? Yeah. I mean, it's I mean, kind it, of astonishing. Yeah, what about all those people, engagement surveys and posts exactly. surveys and endless stuff? Endless stuff about am I engaged in how much I hate my job or am I engaged in how much I love my job? But How much you know, you do I hate young, my boss? Is my boss yeah, a problem? Yeah, we use ENPS normally, employee NPS is another way to measure that. You have young workers, you have old workers, you have men, you have women, you have frontline workers, you have executives, you have there are care workers, there are knowledge workers, there are office workers. I mean, you know, why on earth? would we think that one way to manage talent is likely to meet the needs of all those people? If you're a multinational, you've got workers in developing countries with young workforces like India and Nigeria. You've got workers in developed countries with aging, shrinking workforces like Japan and Italy. Why would we think that one system would work? We're just completely missing the point if we find ourselves you know, with a talent system designed for the average worker. Because we know how to do de-averaging. We've been de-averaging customers for decades. But why don't we do that with our people? So, I like this word of de-averaging. I haven't heard this before. Yeah, it's exactly as it sounds, Aviva. It's don't just assume that everybody sort of tends towards the mean in terms of what they want, how they want to be recruited, how they want to be rewarded and paid and recognized. It's a ludicrous assumption about human beings, actually, which we'd never make about our customers. But we seem to be more comfortable making it about our employees. And I assume it hasn't changed much in the last few days. Aren't we kind of using the same motivation and reward systems that were created for the single earner man of the post-war era? Yeah, very much so. I mean, we call that the professional management era. 
that model kind of 20th century born and nurtured in North America, but then spread very successfully around the world where jobs are pretty stable. You want to be a deep generalist. If you want to get up the ladder, you're going to have a fairly predictable set of steps to take you up the ladder with predictable pay increases as you go and some nice toys, you know, a corner office or a bigger car along the way. And that's worked very well for 100 years, but I don't think it's working as well, at least not for big chunks of the workforce as it used to. And of course, there are firms who do understand this. I don't mean to make light of those firms who are putting efforts into customization, but it's not the norm. That was one big thrust. The other big thrust, obviously, and this may have been something that caught your eye because I know you're very focused on it, is demography. And that's fairly well understood, I think, although maybe not as well understood as it needs to be. We've got one person in five today in the developed markets is already over 55 years old. So you've got your two pizza team at Amazon, whatever that is, you know, that's two people out of the 10 are already 55 or older. And that's on its way to being one quarter of the workforce by the end of this decade. Some countries sort of zooming towards that. Overall, it means about 150 million jobs between now and the end of this decade will move into workers who are 55 years or older. And that's on top of 550 million today. So it's another third of jobs will go to so-called older workers. Another third of jobs. Okay, so a third of jobs are going to be in... A third of increments, which is 550 million workers today, 55 plus, there'll be another 150 million. These numbers are just absolutely staggering. People stay in education longer, which I guess we'd say is a good thing. But second of all, we just have these unbelievably low fertility rates. The famous English, late 18th century English economist Thomas Malthus was wrong about so many things. But he was particularly wrong about this. He said that when people get richer, they're going to have more and more children. And it turns out when they get richer, they have fewer and fewer children. So this is not turning around any time. I don't think he understood the phenomenon of modern women voting with their wombs. But hey, (laughs) one of many things, one of many things. One of many things that... So, James, you're a partner in the Hong Kong office. You've worked in Asia for many, many years, and you chair this Bain Futures team. Is this what first got you interested in the aging topic, this study and the emergence that you saw of this extra 150 million people? Or are we just all showing our age and tracking our own personal (laughs) futures? I come at older workers 100% through the lens of talent overall. As I said, we live in this world of talent scarcity. The workforce of today is shrinking in many countries. It's becoming more complicated, more heterogeneous, more dispersed. Actually, you could say more interesting in a way, more interesting to look at and definitely harder to manage. And firms have been learning to do more with less people for a long time. That's been a theme for decades. AI is just kind of the most recent particle accelerator of that trend. Uh, and the productivity push comes in many forms. We have more things that look like self-managing teams these days. We have the hollowing out of middle management in many companies, more outsourcing, and in particular, more investment in technology. That's one reason that I got so interested in it. The second was that as soon as I started to dig in, I very quickly confronted what I think of now as sort of the paradox of aging. So on the one hand, you know, 60 is the new 40, apparently. We're surrounded by these celebrations of extended vitality and uh, billions of dollars going into the 100-year life research and Silicon Valley titans wanting to treat death as a curable illness. Now, that's just in the media, the images of these beautiful 
beautiful 60-year-olds lovingly protecting their heirloom assets for their children, right? Or learning to kite surf or play the ukulele or do crossword puzzles to stave off. Jump out of helicopter. That's on the one side. And yet the reality is, and that's as true where you are as where I am, is that we live in an era still of massive age discrimination at work. And so there are dozens of studies on this, dozens and dozens and dozens. The AARP in America did one a couple of years ago that said 60 plus percent of people had observed age discrimination. And there was one in Hong Kong where I live. 35% of workers had experienced it themselves. There was another one in America, same sort of number, roughly 30% of people in the workforce said they had experienced it. In China, we talk about the curse of 35. That's an expression in China. 35, my God, that's the tip over? Wow. That's the harder to get employed at that point. So, yeah, there's legislation to combat that. We are grateful, I suppose. The Age Discrimination Act in the States goes back to the 60s. There was a very innovative piece of legislation in the UK in 2010 that really tried to tackle it. But still, there's just a lot to unpack when it comes to why, on the one hand, we're so celebratory. On the other hand, in reality at work, we discriminate still often. I find it's kind of a new phenomenon. And so we're trying desperately to find some role models of how to do this differently. And yes, the um, advertising bunch are trying to err on the side of let's celebrate this thing when the reality is the systems are not catching up as you've so effectively demonstrated in large corporates. Now, your answer to analyzing this mass of data that you accumulated was to develop these six archetypes that I love that effectively mm. englobe this diversity of motivations that you are observing people bring to work. Can you list them briefly? And yes. for listeners, you've actually developed a little quiz so you can self-analyze. I did this with my social network and everybody was sending me what type, what archetype oh, they were. Wonderful. And it was super popular. I'm a pioneer. What are you, James? I absolutely would peg you as a pioneer. And that's great. <laughs> and that's why you're doing this kind of innovation. I'm a striver who became a giver. And I want to come back to that point about this archetype can evolve. But before that language gets too confusing to Listeners, let me just briefly, as you said, just ping through them. This is where the global research is 40,000 people, 19 countries. Really, this produced something very new and exciting, I think. Yeah, six archetypes can capture basically everybody. And you might be participating almost all in one of them, or you might be, you know, picking from either one. So two of them fundamentally care about relationships at work. The giver is a profile that loves to help other people thrive. The operator also expects to have friends at work, but they're more of a kind of keep my head down, don't take too many risks at work, do a good job, but then go home. My job is just a job, is the kind of classic I've got. That's but it's my social network, is that what you mean, for the operator? They like to have friends at work. They would yeah. expect to have friends at work, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's an important part of what motivates them. Right. But mostly their life motivation is outside work. They're not looking for meaning and purpose in their job. The next two are mainly about learning and growing. Explorers are highly motivated to try new things, new jobs, new roles, and they'll trade off money and security and status for the freedom to keep doing that. And the artisan's a bit different, a bit more of self-contained. They want to become masters of their domain, whatever that domain is, and just keep doing that. And then the last pair are fundamentally motivated by achievement at work. So strivers plan ahead. They value the recognition of promotions and progress and really kind of drive to those moments of transition. 
Pioneers also care about achievement, but their definition of achievement is I want to change the world in some way. So that's you. And they're very happy to take risks. They're very happy to be autonomous, try and bring people with them on that journey to that particular goal. So is there any larger group? Is one group dominant? Are they relatively similarly sized, these things? No, thank you for that question. The operators and the strivers are significantly the largest segments. So in every economy of the world that we've done the research, those two combined, operators plus drivers, are somewhere between 40 and 50% of the workforce. And then the others are, you know, the pioneers, you're in a relatively small group, around 7, 8, 9, 10%, depending on the country. Similar for the givers, explorers, a little bit more, 15, 16, 17. Artisans, roughly the same. So, you know, some variations from country to country. But actually, you'd be more surprised by the similarities than by the differences. You go to a very young workforce like India, Nigeria, you tend to get more Avivas. You get more pioneers. Kind of makes sense in terms of optimism about the ability to change, high growth environment for them to work in. And you go to, sadly, to Japan, you get a very high number of operators and a very high number of strivers who are perhaps living in a kind of working environment that may be ahead for many of us in other developed markets. You tend to see more artisans and givers as people age. So typically, on average, strivers and pioneers when young become artisans and givers when older. That doesn't mean that each individual will go through that journey. You may just be who you are at work for your entire career. But when you look at the aggregate data, that's what we see. And it's important to know that this Bain motivation archetype does allow you to change over time. And it's very clear from the data that people kind of, it's my own experience. So as I said, not to say you definitely will change, but you can, and that's part of the system. So that's different from some other. It reminds me of Arthur Brooks's book, Strength to Strength, where he's really describing very much the kind of striver profile and how it evolves into, yeah, very much the giver and the artisan. So I like that because he also talks about fluid versus crystallized intelligence. In effect, it's not quite just by age, but in effect says younger, fluid, older, crystallized, but still very valuable in a firm environment, actually in a life environment. So that's, he's onto something very important there. So this brings me to this ever question I have of the numbers we choose and the data we collect. In the general confusion of what we define as older, there are big organizations, the WHO at 60, others at 65, some are at 50, the AARP is 50. You've chosen 55. So tell me why. We didn't so much choose it as we let the data point us to where it pointed us. If you go back to the full sample, what we know for sure, and this is extraordinary given the current narrative around the world of work, is that most workers in almost all countries, almost all job categories, and all archetypes, the number one thing they want in a job is, guess what, good compensation. Few exceptions, I'll spend a second on them. There's a couple of markets where good compensation comes in second, usually to interesting work. So France is one of those, where I know you've lived. The Nordics countries is one of those. But by and large, everywhere else in the planet, Good comp is the number one attribute that people want in a job. Now, around 55 years old in the data set, and then progressively from there through to about 62, where the change stops, we see interesting work start to become more important in the job attribute test 
over good compensation. And two other things spike up as well. One is autonomy and one is flexibility. Now, again, there are some cohorts in some markets where those things are important, but they definitely, on average across the world, for these older workers, 55 plus and increasingly up to about 62, they just become more important. And it makes perfect sense. By the way, just for fun, there is in America, good old America, where we've probably both spent a lot of time and I've lived there. We, we love all the data that we get from them. Uh, yeah, we love all the data because it's so rich. Good compensation remains the number one job attribute. All the way. <laughs> for, all the way. Whereas in Australia and Canada and the UK and France, Italy, Germany, Japan, it drops down, as I mentioned. China. That's, that's fascinating. The cross-cultural yeah. analysis it, of where money remains the driving, motivating It factor. is. It's actually, America, USA is the only country where it stays number one. Right the way through. Ah, uh, wow. China, what replaces good comp for them is flexibility. That becomes the number one criteria. And India, it's actually job security is very important across the board in India for reasons you can understand, but it becomes the most important thing for older workers. So quite a bit of richness in digging into that. But so, yeah, we didn't pick 55. We let ourselves be drawn there. It's so fantastic to have this data because I've heard from national surveys all over the place that, yes, you know, older people, interesting work becomes a bit more important. But it's absolutely amazing to have this absolutely global analysis of exactly when that shift happens and how it happens relatively to a culture that people might be in. So, yes, over 55 is it. So a wonderful, easy number for us all to align on. Seems awfully young to me, but I don't know. That's what... (laughs) (laughs) But a good place to measure and then a real wake up for companies to start measuring what percentage of their employees might be over that magic number and are they adapting their motivation system. So one of the surprises that you shared with me was that this survey and the quiz, really fun quiz that goes along to find out what your type is for the motivational archetype was the most popular and downloaded piece of work Bain has ever done. I do think that there is a desire that we have to have a language to anchor ourselves about who we are in certain environments. I think that's just a human thing. I think it's natural, by the way. I think it's positive. And we made the digital assets on our websites and LinkedIn. That's going to be, we try to make them very simple, very accessible. So the research itself is not simple. It's complex. Lots of interlocking questions that we ask these 40,000 people, but we turn that into the one-minute quiz so people could read a little bit about themselves. Plus, I just think people like quizzes. I think quizzes are inherently quite attractive and fun. We had amazing reactions, multiple reactions, some of them very touching, where people wanted to share their stories. I remember one woman wrote to us, very successful professional woman who had given up work to focus her full attention on a child of hers who had some quite severe health problems. And she went out of her way to say, I have no regrets. I was delighted to do that. But about a dozen years went by and she was right in the process of trying to get back to work and was having a devil of a time getting recruiters to pay attention. So I'm not saying that's representative, but maybe representative of some people's experience, but it really touched some people. I did have one or two people who just object wholesale to labeling. Yeah. And I I respect that, you know, but we did debate this a lot and everybody on the Bain team and on the tens of thousands of other people who've engaged on this either in direct conversations, presentations, or online, et cetera, didn't really worry about that. I mean, I think you do have to be very careful in implementation of these sorts of things. The cartoons of the archetypes can be tricky. You know, 
the striver is just a kind of, you know, grasping corporate bastard and, you know, the explorer is a fickle and can't hold on to a job and the artisan's a bad team player. You know, you can see, so you have to be very thoughtful. But for me, hands down, the benefits of of having this language and having it help me understand myself and my team outweigh those concerns. I mean, I think people just want to understand work. I think work oh, is And so sometimes you just need a degree of simplicity through the reams of complex data and yeah. conflicting research to just be able to implement policy shifts. And if we can get away from the one model reward system to a six model, that's already a big improvement. Right. So work embraces such a wide range of human behavior, both physical and mental. You know, you've got to come up with solutions. You've got to build alignment around that. You've got to coach people or instruct people. You've got to use your physical strength in some types of work. And technology is kind of progressively replacing those very historically human aspects of work. And I think that's a big chunk of what's going on in modern history. Fascinating. And at the same time, I think the concept of the individual with a unique identity is a very modern phenomenon. It's a kind of post-enlightenment idea that we're each different and unique and that we deserve the right to be unique and different and do the things that the pursuit of which will allow us to be uniquely happy in our own way. Yeah, and even that varies so extraordinarily around the globe from more individualistic cultures to much more communitarian ones. Did you do any, I can't resist since this is one of our subspecialties on this podcast, did you do any of the analysis by gender? Is there any difference among these groups, any of these archetypes that lean towards one gender or the other? Yes. Well, archetypes, no. The mix of archetypes is astonishingly consistent between men and women. The answer to your question is, yes, there are differences. Some of them are riveting at the country level. But if I look at the global level, just to keep it simple initially, I mentioned job attributes. What do people want in a job? There was 10 possibilities. You've done the quiz. The thing that leaps out of the data is how much more women in the workforce value flexibility than men. So you will not be surprised to hear that. But no, it's I a, don't think too many people will be surprised. 20 yep. percentage points different, wow. and dramatically higher. And when you get into individual countries, there's some fascinating things. Actually, some markets, women value compensation more than men. And I feel like I can understand why that might be because of gender pay gaps. It's like, yep. this really matters to me in my particular yep. environment. To not just be paid, I've got to kind of overcompensate in my desire for good comp in order just to get to parity. So, yes, we have a lot of richness in aging workers, looking at men versus women again, quite surprising to me in some respects, but I don't know why I was surprised. Not that much difference. Not that much difference. Artisans, givers, they emerge in both genders, all types of worker, all types of country. That trend persists across. I like to think we become more similar as we age. That might be an interesting yeah, an interesting human trend. Maturity is somehow a melding, but we'll leave that for a future study. I want to turn to, okay, so what can companies do with this? What are the solutions to tapping into this fascinating intergenerational dividend, really, that you're kind of serving up on a platter here? The OECD says only about 5% of companies are currently consciously working on age and generations. This data isn't new. This growing, extraordinary demographic explosion has been the most announced thing for a few decades but it's incredibly compelling. Why do you think it's taking its sweet time to get on the corporate agenda? And do you think it's now there? Have we cracked this nut? 
there's a lot on the CEO agenda, first of all. <laughs> yes. There's a lot. There's a lot. It's been quite a few decades and certainly a year. I think if you live in one of the vanguard countries like Japan, it is on the agenda. If you don't, you're probably, as a leadership team, working on other aspects of inclusion, which I think is what this is ultimately about. And are we there? No. I think these things move slowly. But I do think firms are starting to get going. Your work on this and that of others and some other firms have written some pieces as well, I understand. There's a gradual consciousness raising. By the way, you're absolutely right to call it a dividend, as you know. I mean, age, there's good data that age-diverse workforces are good. That was the, let's set aside legal or moral or strategic reasons. There are economic reasons. You know, there's positive correlation in some studies between having a multi-generational workforce and productivity. There's statistical correlation between multi-generational workforce and retention. So there's all sorts of good things can happen if you kick it around. I also think that just, you know, wake up and wander around your office is what's happening more. There are five generations at work together now. And that's pretty unusual. I'm not sure we've ever had that. So there are still people from a silent generation very much around. Yeah. I mean, not just at Berkshire Hathaway. There are still <laughs> plenty of people of that era who are working. And then obviously you've got the boomers and Gen X and the millennials and Gen Z. And the kind of, you know, let's just take the simplest thing about how do you communicate? Do you communicate on text? Do you communicate on email? Do you pick up the phone? Do you go in person? No, I mean, you don't pick up the phone if you're under 30, I think. That whole if, idea is gone. That's gone. But if you're over 65, 70, that's your default other than being live. In, so there's just a range of things. Now, so what do you, you think of this intergenerational warfare that the media loves to kind of fan a little bit? Are we buying this or is this completely? I, I don't yeah. see it. I'd like to know more about it, but I don't see it at my clients. I don't see it in our firm or the firms I know best at all. And what should they be doing? What are, what what are the key things you recommend companies do to get what yeah. we might call longevity ready? That's a lovely expression. And I think that is the right way to think about it, together with having a multi-generational workforce be effective. Yep. Not all the focus is on the older workers. It's about them in relation to everybody else. And Never segment old into old in any capacity. Just correct. include them in the mix. There's one example I like. There's a European IT services company called Atos is doing lots of great things for 50 They call them their tenured talent. I like that. So first of all, you've got to either retain them if you've got them or recruit them if you haven't got them. And what we now know is that what they want is interesting work on average. Okay. And now my whole theme and thrust here is about customization to some extent. But if you are not allowing higher degrees of autonomy and flexibility around that interesting work, you're probably not attracting them or keeping them if you have them. So a bunch of firms, Home Depot has done a wonderful job of this going back 20 years now, you won't be surprised to know that a lot of the best work is going on in Japan because they no choice. So companies like Mitsubishi, Tokyo Gas, and many others have whole sort of infrastructure built on the edge of their HR systems for older workers. They have these wonderful Japanese titles for stuff, you know, the grand career system and things. But they're designed to coach and help older workers figure out what jobs are good for me? What kind of retraining do I need? What other kind of outside work activities should I be pursuing? I like the little example from Cisco that I saw recently. You've probably seen this, but Cisco just very recently introduced their Granternity program. So you're becoming a grandparent? Yes, I did see that. That's you nice can take, me. I think it's a week off, paid leave to go and take care of your new grandchild. I mean, what a genius, genius. idea yep. just to kind of meet 
your people where they are. So that's the first thing. Second, you've got to reskill. There's just no doubt. You have to reskill. And this is tricky because this is a two-way street. There are absolutely older workers who don't want to be reskilled. And I may come back to them in a minute. But on average... I guess that's the opposite. I I wouldn't assume it's all one archetype. I don't know. You're welcome to speculate as am I, but I don't have definitive data. What I do have data on is that older workers do not value, remember the job attributes, compensate, they don't value learning and growth as highly as all other age groups. That's on average. Of course, Mm. there are plenty of older workers who keep the growth mindset. They want to get learning. So I think the training challenge is to give training that allows older workers to pursue the things that they care about, namely interesting work. I mentioned ATOS earlier. I think they're brilliant at that. They started this a couple of years ago, 50 plus. You can choose your own training topics from a huge menu. It's all free. It's all paid by the company. And I think quite cleverly, they use what they call tenured talent, older workers, as trainers. So they try and keep the trainers themselves relevant to the trainees, which I think is really good. So the third thing is, and this will sound a little bit motherhood and apple pie, but I really believe it. You have to figure out ways to respect the strengths that they bring. They don't bring everything, but they're more loyal. I've got absolutely solid data from our research that older workers are loyal to their firms about 70% of the time versus all other age groups, 47%. That's a big difference. Wow, that's a big gap. Yep. They're also just more satisfied in general. Yeah. They're more satisfied with life and they're, they're more happier, satisfied yeah. with work, right? And we know this from other research. So a number of firms, I think, are taking advantage of that. So BMW have a wonderful thing called a Senior Experts Program. So it's a return-to-work program. I'll come back to that in a second. So people who've left come back part-time. It's part-time, which older workers love. They love the control. And it's about mentoring people. So it's in the bullseye for givers of a certain type. They want to work all the time. They want to be helping other people develop. And they want to come back into the workforce. So there's lots of others. I think Allianz, the insurance company, have done a magnificent job of explicitly communicating about the five generations that work at Allianz. So they have kind of affinity groups for each age group. They have affinity groups that bring different age groups together and say, well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And have them talk to each other about how to be effective as team members and teammates. Another insurance company, funnily enough, not surprising to me that insurance companies are ahead of this. Yeah, they're aware. They're watching. They know. Swiss Re, big reinsurance company, they put a whole team of people together, do some design thinking, and came up with 12 different ways to think about retirement. So one thing that older workers love from our research is they want that control, the autonomy, and it manifests in, I would like to dial down a bit. So I don't want the axe to fall on my 61st birthday or whatever. I'd like to go part-time, or I'd like to be maybe go freelance, or have just work three days a week. Or That's something that Swiss Re have identified as a stepstone to full retirement that you can kind of take at your own speed. So in no particular order, I like five things that I think firms should be thinking about doing. So reverse mentoring, really simple. Quite a few firms do it. Quite a few firms do it with lack of real conviction, I think, but they're trying. That's good. Second is the kind of return to work, re-entry types of programs like the BMW one, Number of examples of that. Third is intergenerational employee resource groups. Yep. That's great, like Alliance. Fourth is the training options, really thinking about what do these people need. Some of it's just the same as everybody else, but some of it's a bit different. 
And then the fifth one I like is these phased retirement options. It gave people some choice. It's very interesting how much overlap there is in those policy responses to the gender balancing issue as there is to the generational balance. I feel like I'm revisiting the same policy playbook. I just want to question you on one because you're very talent focused and this is all about better understanding talent and employee motivation. You were saying in our earlier conversation that you think marketing has learned about segmentation years ago and it's really just HR that's treating everyone the same. I keep hearing complaints from the over 55 consumer about feeling ignored and invisible to brands and brands not being very inclusive of older workers. Do you not see that or hear that? I remember you asking me about that earlier. And I'll be honest that I, I mean, other than the basic laws of economics, which is that products are developed for the biggest possible markets to access the biggest possible profit pools with as much growth as possible in it. I have not really noticed my clients or other companies I'm connected to ignoring older consumers. There are, in fact, many examples from things to do with personal care to pharmaceuticals, over-the-counter health remedies, infrastructure builds around bathrooms and mobility solutions that cars that I think cater wonderfully to older workers. Now, could it go a lot further? Are we going to have a wave of robotic solutions as we've sort of got going in Japan? Companionship types of um, products and solutions, maybe? I'm very curious. I would like to debate that with you and learn more because I haven't really seen that. We will revisit the invisibility of the over 55, particularly women are complaining, but we'll come back on that. And you've also said something that I'm very curious about is that this new approach blows apart inclusion. What do you mean by that? And (laughs) (laughs) That's a a pretty dramatic statement. That's probably typical hyperbole. I Look, inclusion has its roots in sociology and anthropology, obviously. In the world of work, I think inclusion is really about practice and not about theory. So first, you cultivate awareness amongst people. You endorse behavior that counteracts bias. Then you encourage people to stand up for and speak out on behalf of when they see exclusion or bias going on. And then you try and bring it all together so that actually people can become advocates for equity of all sorts. And the usual dimensions we know, gender and race and ethnicity and sexuality and disability sometimes. But I have come to believe through all this work and listening to so many workers talk about themselves that motivation is equally important as a way to think about including people. Because it's just, as I said earlier on, it's ludicrous, I think is not too strong a word, to assume that we're all motivated at work for the same reasons. And now we have the data to demonstrate that we're not. And archetypes, I think, can bring us insight, first of all, so that we can sort of, as they say today, bring our best selves to work, but also so that the teams we're on can be more effective. Imagine the insight. I know that my team leader is a striver. And she is, let's have a good presentation with the CEO next week because maybe she's thinking I can get promoted next January as opposed to wait till July. So I can see that. And even if I'm not a striver, I can recognize that that's what's going on. Similarly, she knows that I'm an operator. My priority is to do a good job, but to get home and pick up Johnny from football at five o'clock. So maybe she can adapt her behavior. So I think there's some genuine opportunity here. And I see it around the world as I've been taking this around the world to companies. The response is very, very excited about this way to include 
improve, expand the concept of inclusion. Yes, it certainly sounds like it would be less of a divisive idea and much more something that could bring people together across differences, which I would advocate for wildly. So let's conclude with, since you've seen all the data and you're working with all these organizations, one suggestion for the individuals who might be listening to get prepared, get ready to be an older worker. For anybody who's heading towards 55 or already well past it, what might they want to be putting into their backpack professionally? I think there's a little sequence of things. First is decide what you want. Don't want to retire? Don't want to retire a little bit? Or do I not want to retire? And there's lots of things will play into that. Financials will be one. The nature of your setup in life will be another. But that's the first thing. The second, of course, I'm going to say this, second one is to understand your archetype. Because if you understand your archetype, you're going to have a pretty improved chance of knowing what it is in work that you would like over the next, shall we say, three, five years. So that's very important. Third, I think let's start to ask you as the older worker to be much more transparent with your firm about what it is that's going to keep you engaged, keep you productive, and keep you in the job. Because you can now begin to assume that they need you and that they're working out, as they have in Japan, as they have in Italy, that they can't actually get where they need to get to without you. And then the fourth and last thing I would say is you do need to keep that growth mindset. I think, you know, an older worker who says, I know I've done it all. I've nothing more for me to learn is probably not telegraphing the right attitude to their employer. Now, if you work in a very small firm, different. But I think that growth mindset, which is not my phrase, of course, but I like it, is an important attribute for them to present to their employer. Absolutely essential to uh, human aging. Please keep growing, folks. So, James Root, you are growing and helping us grow. Thank you so much for this report. Listeners, you will find the link to Better With Age, The Rising Importance of Older Workers in the show notes. And James, I think we have a few more subjects we're going to have to revisit. So let's just say until next time. Thank you so much. I really enjoy learning from you. Thank you so much for being with us. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. For more thinking about the impact of our four-quarter lives, you can read my column at Forbes and subscribe to my Elderberries newsletter on Substack. Let's design lives that aren't just longer, but better.